0: Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business
1: run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have with me Eric Shepard. As you will note, when he uh, introduces himself, he is from east of Houston. So, Eric, with that, welcome. First of all, thank you. So much for taking the time to visit with me today.
0: Oh, you're very welcome, Ed. It's a great privilege to be on your show. Thank you.
1: So, Eric, I was wondering if you could give our audience a, a taste of your professional background.
0: Sure. So, I started in the computer industry uh, before there was a real computer industry in the uh, late 70s. So, I was very lucky to work from kind of hardware systems, software systems, witnessing the evolution of the PC and then the internet and then apps, et cetera. I started because of the it was a burgeoning industry, and you might be able to tell from my accent, I'm way east of Houston, being born and raised in London. I uh, was on the board of directors uh, there of a high-tech company, ended up transferring to uh, New York to actually take over one of the divisions of that company. And I learned a lot of things very quickly after the previous president had taken a cashier's check from the bank and uh, left us with no money to meet payroll. So that was an interesting experience first day on the job running a a U.S. subsidiary. Then started in the 90s representing uh, foreign corporations in the U.S. and would dress them up as kind of looking like U.S. corporations, so using the right format of paper and and meet the expectations of, of U.S. potential customers. In that, I uh, stumbled into a company called Question Mark, and they provided assessment systems to assess knowledge, skills, and abilities, and became their CEO. I was representing them as kind of reseller. Then I joined them as their CEO. We'd merged the companies, joined them as CEO. and ran that company for 18 years and left just a couple of years ago. Now I'm an executive director of a a company called, a not-for-profit company called uh, Talent Transformation. We just focus on helping people understand the future and and leadership and learning.
1: So my first class in what is now called, or what was then called computer science, although we called it data processing, was uh, learning how to write COBOL and FORTRAN with what four and what five. Mm -hmm. So uh, that dates me as well. (laughs) But I wanted to turn to a phrase that we hear, I think, uh, several people bandy about, but I wanted to get your take on it. And what is the fourth industrial revolution? Well, the fourth industrial
0: revolution is recognizing that more intelligence is being built into machines that can do tasks that are currently being done by humans. So the first industrial revolution was about harnessing steam power and machines second industrial revolution was about standardization, so uh, we could have production lines and standard screw threads and standard power distribution. The third industrial revolution was more about computing, so we could store data, retrieve data, and now we're moving where the machines are becoming more intelligent. And what that means is that we'll see machines replacing tasks of humans, especially the repetitive tasks or the dirty tasks, the dangerous tasks. So we'll see AI used in drones to keep them stable in order to deliver packages or to inspect sewers. So this intelligence is, we'll see, in my opinion, an exponential rise in the use of technologies. And what that will mean is that people will need to learn new skills and be more agile in their approach to work.
1: So let me take a phrase from your home island uh, from the second industrial revolution, and that's Luddites. And Luddites still exist today. And many of them are afraid of a fourth industrial revolution because they think we as human beings will be supplanted. And every time I talk to someone who's thought about this and talked about this and read and considered these issues, they basically say poppycock, that the human element will always be present, but it will allow us to have a greater insight and have more data available. Where do you come down on sort of the either on the Luddite side or perhaps on the other side?
0: Well, well, Tom, I would probably try and navigate a course in the middle. And just as technology is going to disrupt a lot of jobs, we can also use technology to help us learn the skills required for the 21st century. So a lot of these skills and things such as communication, collaboration, conflict resolution, we can't ignore The feelings that some people will have about being displaced from their job. They will feel angry and irritated. And it is up to society to provide learning systems to help them move into another role to help them contribute to society. So we can't ignore either side of the uh, equation, but we certainly need to provide learning systems out there to help people to transition to their new roles.
1: Is that one of the bases for talent transformation or? Was talent transformation basically around and now can, for as long as you've been doing it, and is a tool that can be utilized going forward? It was kind of a, an evolutionary
0: process. So after living in the world of assessments for 25 years, I had a good understanding of assessing knowledge, skills, and abilities. And I didn't have such a good idea about assessing behaviors or emotional intelligence or personality traits. So, when I stepped down from my previous role, I wanted to understand how mindset and skill set would support readiness and performance. So, how would people be ready to do tasks and how would they perform, but being based on both their behaviors and social and emotional intelligence and their knowledge of the skills. So, I wanted to put a model together to help explain this to people because it had been a frustration of mine that I, it wasn't easy to explain. So I went chatting with friends, and that time, you know, we could meet face-to-face, so there was a few bars and restaurants and corporate meeting rooms involved. And we came up with this idea of the talent transformation pyramid, and it kind of showed how personality traits and our cognitive systems would support, ultimately, performance at an individual level, team level, and organization. So I put this together, and then people said, well, that's all very well, you know, it's a nice pyramid. That's helpful, but there's a lot of depth to this. So could you write more about it? So that uh, ended up teaming with a former colleague of mine to write a book, Talent Transformation. Then as we were developing the book, we also developed additional material that wasn't appropriate to go in the book or the book would have been the size of an encyclopedia. So we just started putting that into a website, which is now the Talent Transformation Guild and talenttransformation.com. And so it's all this support material, one, helping people understand the changes that are happening and kind of how we might react to change at an individual, team, organizational level, and then explaining the talent transformation pyramid kind of more in depth of each of the 12 factors so that people can understand how to assess themselves, assess others, assess teams, assess organizations, to put that all together. Now, Tom, it's built on the work of a lot of other people. There's been a lot of specialists of, that have looked at organizational development or individual development. So this was trying to provide an overview for kind of, uh, I wish I'd had this kind of overview in my job as a CEO to say, "Ah, oh, that's what helps the right kind of behaviors. That's what helps the right kind of skills so that we can perform well as an organization. So that's how it evolved over time.
1: Let me pick up on that last point, because what do you see as the CEO's role in talent transformation? And if I could overlay that in the context of the coronavirus health crisis, where um wellness has become perhaps not more of an issue, but a different type of wellness issue has arisen as people have worked from home for the past now 10 or 11 months and may have to look at returning to work. What's the CEO's role in all of that?
0: Yeah. So one thing I think a CEO has to do is set culture, and depending on the actual business that they're running, culture might be different. So if you're running an oil company, it might be different than if you're running a research and development organisation, a software development, or a bank. So, but setting culture I think is a key responsibility of a CEO. In th- these times, people have become very fearful of what may happen. They don't know if they're going to have a job. They don't know if they Company's going to be in business. They don't know if they're going to be infected. They don't know if their loved ones are going to be infected. And all of these are aspects that will distract someone from being able to perform effectively. So being kind of very authentic, open, honest, and recognizing that people would have fears, but then addressing these fears. So in the health and safety, it would be follow the guidance of scientists. These scientists have been uh, studying this for much longer than we have, so they probably know something we don't know. So that's why I think that the CEO sets that culture and says wellness is important, psychological safety is important, inclusion is important. It's those kind of things that's going to help us run organizations during this crisis.
1: So let me uh, also pick up on another last point you raised, which was inclusion. And diversity has been a byword of the United States employment Seen since uh, Title VII and the Civil Rights Act were passed, mm. and now we have the word inclusion. So I'm a Southerner. I grew up in the South. I grew up in, in the age of Title VII, EEOC, where they would let let you in the door. That's what diversity meant. Yes, you can come in and work here. We're not going to keep you from doing that. Uh, but that was it. And now they've added the word inclusion, and to me, that's highly significant because inclusion does not say we're going to let you in the door. Inclusion says you're going to be a part of us and we're not going to ask you to change to us. We're going to embrace you for who you are. And I find that to be incredibly powerful. And I'm a lawyer by professional training, so words matter to me. But that term inclusion, does that really have to be set by leadership at the top that we are going to bring in people who look different than us, who think different than us, who may be different than us, but we are going to include them as one of us
0: yeah i mean first of all tom i think you've summed up the the issue extremely well i also think it's a very important issue and yes it comes from the top and the pandemic has caused more risk to people feeling excluded it's much easier to exclude people uh, when they're working from home than it was in the office because people in the office could witness what was going on around them and so it's a culture from the top, and it's making sure that everybody does feel included,
1: yeah. So i got to turn to specifically to your the company that you co-founded and ask you, uh, really, although having listened to this podcast now, I think I'm going to know the answer, but what led you to found Talent Transformation?
0: Well, part of it was that we recognized what was happening with the fourth industrial revolution. We recognized that there could be a lot of inappropriate decisions made where, you, where the leaders could just exit 25% of their workforce and bring on a, a new 25%, which would be unhealthy for their organization and, and unhealthy for society. So helping people understand what was happening, why it was happening, and how they could transition and how talent could be upskilled and reskilled to take on these new tasks. So I think first was helping people recognize the problem and then giving them a formula to resolve the challenges.
1: In doing a little bit of research for this podcast, it struck me that your approach is flexible enough to help an individual employee, help a chief compliance officer understand the roles they may need to embrace. But it also is broad enough to be overlaid on an entire corporate level to help a corporation understand where its workforce may be headed. Is that a fair assessment?
0: That is a fair assessment, yes. And it's recognition. What we're trying to do is also recognize that A lot of the repetitive tasks that were performed by individuals in the past are going to be replaced by machines. So, what is the place of humans in the future? Well, the place of humans in the future is more about creativity, communications, cooperation, collaboration, all the kind of C words. So, to encourage that through learning, through culture, we'll see those organizations tend to be more successful because they are being more creative and embracing the possibilities of the future.
1: That's interesting because my observation would be the company that can embrace those talents and those skills is actually going to be more efficient. And having greater efficiency would lead to greater profitability simply because they're more agile, they're more nimble, they can respond to what we used to call black swan events, but now are just regular events. (laughs)
0: yeah yeah oh no, they're absolutely right i mean in the, in the you mentioned uh, that you're trained in being a lawyer, we see that the legal profession now is using these very comprehensive tools for discovery for natural language process to read briefs to read contracts to kind of spot what's missing, to spot the risk, and now the lawyer does more of the communication, does more of the creative writing, does more of the briefing the uh their client. Uh, As that's an example where they're providing more value because the machine is doing this heavy lifting of all the reading required.
1: When I started practicing law, we had professional proofreaders on staff (laughs) uh, to read contracts. Let me ask you and perhaps tease if I can uh, entice you to another podcast about assessments. And let me set this up a little bit. The Department of Justice has clearly communicated that It's not simply training of employees around compliance, but it's effective training. And this is an area many compliance practitioners have struggled with. How do you one, determine effectiveness and then document your determination? So how would you suggest a compliance officer begin to think through this problem?
0: So part of it is thinking holistically. What are the tasks that people need to perform? What do they need to know and do in order to perform those tasks? And then give them some form of assessment that has a rigor that connects back to the competencies required, connected back to the tasks that they have to perform. So then you can test them and say, do you understand health and safety when dealing with high-powered cables? Or do you understand regulatory compliance around money laundering? So then the burden can shift from the organization to the individual to say, we trained them. And we tested them, and we tested them, and they proved that they knew and they could do and perform these tasks related to money laundering, regulatory compliance, health and safety, etc. So it's very important in compliance that you can prove that the people do know and can do in compliance with law.
1: Can these assessments be done on an ongoing basis to help demonstrate Not simply continued compliance, but continued knowledge of the compliance subject? Yes. And that's a fairly common thing because we used to
0: do tests on paper, but now they're all online. And we see a lot of organizations that might just do a quiz each week or every other week, just asking quiz questions such as what is the safety requirement for tap in, tap out, as an example. So, given that all workers are now connected, whether they're in um, a truck driving around, or if they're testing um, uh, fiber optic cables, or they're sitting at the desk, they all have access to technology. So it's very easy to deliver an assessment and maybe deliver them one question a day, or five questions a week, or do a formal test once a quarter. So, yeah, technology is helping us test people more regularly, and that accumulates evidence to demonstrate that the individual either does know what they're doing or that there should be some kind of training intervention.
1: Earlier, we touched upon some of the issues which have arisen from the coronavirus health crisis and COVID-19, but I wanted to ask, has the pandemic changed your approach of delivering your message, training, or even the assessments we just talked about?
0: Now we act more as uh, kind of business advisors rather than actually doing assessments. So uh, that's certainly where I came from and spurred my interest in talent transformation. When we first set up the Talent Transformation Guild, we were thinking that it would be a membership organization. We very quickly realized with the impact of COVID-19 that we were better off just producing content and making it freely available. And so over the year, We've published a lot of content out on YouTube, on our website, on all the different platforms to be kind of part of the solution. Now we're refining a business model to say, who are the people that really find our stuff powerful? And like many organizations, if you've been producing free content for long enough, you can find out who you really add value to. And then those will be the people that will be engaging as members.
1: What do companies need to think about in 2025 or perhaps even beyond around talent transformation from a corporate perspective think
0: about learning rather than training think about culture so the empowering people to be intrinsically engaged and things like psychological safety so create environments where people feel psychologically safe to be creative to communicate uh, without any threats it's going to be the 21st century skills that I mentioned before, creativity, collaboration, cooperation, conflict resolution, et cetera. And because those are they, by 2025, these are just going to be commonplace because the machines are going to be doing all the other tasks.
1: So listeners, or excuse me, my guests who name the title of their podcast get an extra gold star. So you just said learning rather than training. And that's the title. So you get an extra gold star. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, though, Eric, we're near the end of our time, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on Talent Transformations, your book, any of the topics you've raised, or even to connect with you, what are some of the mechanisms they could do so?
0: Thank you for asking. So the the website, www.talenttransformation.com. Your listeners are also welcome just to email me, and I'll give you the short email address because people might misspell my last name. So it's eric at talenttransformation.com. I'm always interested in, in hearing from people and, and their opinions and that's become very valuable for me. And of course the book is on Amazon, so you can search for Talent Transformation and, and Eric Shepherd and Joan Forpe, the authors.
1: So I'm one of those people who have continually misspelled your name. It is Shepherd S H E P E R D, not S H E A R D. It's actually um, H E R D. S H E P H E H E R D, yeah. There we go. See, I can't even say it right. But it's been a a fascinating exploration. I really hope that we can uh, come back and and visit again. And I hope our listeners will reach out to you, Eric. And I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me. You're very welcome. Very enjoyable. I hope your listeners found it valuable.
0: If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.